0: ZQ is an 84-year-old man presenting to the Wuhan Puran Hospital with a three-day history of fever, cough, and wheezing on December 21st, 2019. He had extensive past medical history including chronic bronchitis, unstable angina, coronary stents, hypertension, gastrointestinal bleeding, renal insufficiency, hyperlipidemia, hyperuricemia, and lacunar, cerebral infarction. In summary, he had heart disease, kidney disease, stomach bleeds, gout and had a previous stroke. ZQ was transferred to the intensive care unit nine days later on December 30, 2019 due to the worsening of his pneumonia and persistently high fever. Doctors gave symptomatic treatment and antibiotics to help curb the chances of a hospital-acquired infection, but at 10.16 a.m. on January 3, 2020, ZQ stopped breathing and his heart rate gradually slowed down. At 10.52 a.m., he was declared dead. In late December 2019, doctors in China identified a string of infections through the Pneumonia of Unknown Etiology surveillance program in Wuhan City, Hubei Province. Pneumonia of Unknown Etiology isn't necessarily describing a clinical diagnosis. Instead, it's a special program that was designed at the SARS outbreak between 2002 and 2003. When a string of cases featuring severe pneumonia come through a geographic region in a short period of time without a known causative pathogen meaning that they don't know what bacteria virus or fungus is causing it then this is cause for concern of a potential outbreak it looks like this infection had some initial link to the huanan seafood market in Wuhan, which sold exotic animals for food. The hypothesis is still that the virus is of a zoonotic origin, meaning that it was first transferred to humans through animals. And as a quick side note, I have family from the province that borders Hubei, it's called Anhui. When I asked family living there if Wuhanese people are known to eat bats and snakes, they had no idea. So I can say with some certainty that this is not mainstream culture over there. And you better believe that there's significant backlash and shaming inside the Chinese-speaking world over this. That's something that we're probably never going to hear about here in the English-speaking world. There's at least a billion people over there who are thinking, what a shame it is now that the world thinks Chinese people like eating bats. So I just want to put that out there. So what is the pneumonia of unknown etiology criteria? What is the qualification for this? So it's based on four things. One, fever of a body temperature greater than or equal to 38 degrees Celsius, which comes out to just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Two, pneumonia shown on a chest x ray or CT scan. Three, low to normal white cell count or low lymphocyte count. Four, no improvements in symptoms after antimicrobial treatment for three to five days following standard clinical guidelines. By January 3rd, 2020, Chinese authorities responded, a tailored surveillance protocol to identify cases was implemented, the criteria being the fever, pneumonia on radiographic imaging, low to normal white cell count or low lymphocyte count, and a link to the Huanan seafood wholesale market in Wuhan, or contact with other patients with similar symptoms. Keep in mind, on January 3rd, 2020, no one outside of China was talking about this, If you can remember back then, in America, the news was primarily dominated by the quarrel with Iran. But when Chinese authorities narrowed their definition inside Wuhan city to include that seafood market, the number of cases started to increase. But interestingly enough, the increase wasn't in patients that was linked to the Huanan seafood market. It looked like contact with other patients with similar symptoms was the main cause of spread. This gives us a few clues as to what's happening, most immediately being that there is human-to-human transmission of this virus. On January 16, 2020, Chinese CDC upgraded this to a level 1 emergency response level. Three days later, on January 19, 2020, the first case was diagnosed outside of Hubei province. But just the day before, a new criteria was set to include travel history to Wuhan or direct contact with patients from Wuhan who had fever or respiratory symptoms within 14 days before illness onset. Confirmed cases at this point, just before February 2020, were defined as ones with respiratory specimens that tested positive for 2019 novel coronavirus, as it was named back then. By January 23rd, 2020, this was the day that Wuhan City was completely locked down and two days before Chinese New Year, this novel coronavirus was starting to dominate international headlines and it had arrived in the United States. So that's the early history of the virus in humans, before it was even officially named. But how did humans figure out this virus in the first place? This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Four lower respiratory tract samples were collected from patients with pneumonia of unknown etiology in Wuhan on December 21, 2019. These patients had been present at the Huanan seafood market close to the time they presented to the emergency room. Seven more fluid specimens were collected from patients in Beijing hospitals with pneumonia of known cause so that the Wuhan samples could be compared. The fluid samples were collected in sterile cups. They were centrifuged to remove cellular debris. And then the clean fluid was treated on human airway epithelial cells. This was a cell culture that was grown. These cells were taken from patients that were getting surgery for lung cancer, and they were confirmed to be pathogen free. But now that the lung fluid samples are placed on it, the idea here is to infect those lung cells to get more virus. Parts of the cell cultures that showed damage under a microscope were collected, and the RNA was extracted from the fluid to clone and sequence the genome that was present. After assembling the reads, specific primers were designed to fill in the gaps from the sequencing, and after multiple sequence alignment reference sequences, the genome was complete and uploaded online. So that's the first documented genome of the virus from China. It was collected and isolated and grown in a cell culture. And then collected from there and sequenced in the united states the first case that was reported on january 19th 2020 in snohomish county washington that viral genome was also sequenced to and uploaded online so that's how we know about the virus but what does an infection look like zt is a 61 year old man presenting to the emergency room with fever cough and weakness on december 20th 2019 he had a history of cirrhosis Seven days later, on December 27th, 2019, he was sent to the respiratory department of the Wuhan Puren Hospital for treatment, but then he was transferred to the intensive care unit the next day on the 28th. Two days later, on December 30th, 2019, he was intubated, meaning that a tube was placed down his throat and he was mechanically ventilated. He was then transferred directly into the ICU at Wuhan Jin Tan Hospital on December 31st unconscious. He was placed on ECMO, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is life support on January 1st. ECMO is a machine where blood is routed out of the body so that a machine can re-oxygenate it. This lets the heart and lungs rest, hoping for a recovery. ZT was given symptomatic treatment including antibiotics, pressors for shock, and fluids for the correction of acidosis. But bacteria was found floating around in his blood as his condition worsened. At 8.47pm on January 9th, 2020, ZT's heart suddenly dropped to zero. ECMO blood flow rate rapidly reduced to almost zero. A code was immediately announced, but by 11.13pm, two and a half hours later. ZT still had no heart rate and the code was called. While ZT's case by itself wasn't published in the literature, he appears as a data point in a Lancet study published on February 21, 2020 titled Clinical Course and Outcomes of Critically Ill Patients with sars Coronavirus 2 Pneumonia in Wuhan, China. The link is in the show notes. In that study, they looked at 52 critically ill patients who were admitted to the Wuhan Yin Ten Hospital before January 12, 2020. Critically ill meant ICU admission requiring mechanical ventilation Or the patient had a fraction of inspired oxygen of at least 60% or more. The interesting characteristics of these patients start with age. The average was about 60 years old with a standard deviation of 13 years. So if we assume relatively normal distribution, we could say that about two-thirds of the patients were between 46 and 72 years old, with some rounding errors. 40% of them had pre-existing chronic illness. So almost half had some kind of disease beforehand. 98% had fever at presentation. 62%, more than half of them, died at 28 days. These patients were in the hospital for an average of 7 days before being transferred in to the intensive care unit. So to break down that data even more, of the ones who died, the mean age was 65 years old. The mean age for survivors was 52 years old, so survivors in general were younger. Of the ones who died, 81% of them had acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, whereas the ones who survived, only 45% of them had ARDS. Keep in mind, this is 52 critically ill patients out of 710 who were confirmed to have SARS-CoV-2 pneumonia by January 26, 2020. So we're looking at a less than 10% subset of patients. To put it another way, more than 90% of patients who had the SARS-2 pneumonia did not have critical illness. Of the critically ill who did die, 94% of them needed mechanical ventilation. Only 35% of the survivors needed mechanical ventilation. And organ damage in those who died included kidney injury, 29% of them, cardiac injury, 23% of them, liver dysfunction, 29% of them. So based on a group who was the earliest to be infected and who died, organ damage was anywhere from one fourth to one third. This Yin 10 hospital is the one in Wuhan that's designated for treating these COVID-19 patients. So older patients with pre-existing disease who were intubated had a higher chance of death. When people say this is kind of like the seasonal flu, it's really not. The seasonal flu is dangerous, but The death rate isn't as high as this COVID-19 disease when you count for all comers. The death rate of the flu in 2018 in America was 0.01%. COVID-19's death rate is at least an order of magnitude greater, if not 2. This brings us to the question, how does this SARS-2 virus spread, and how does it infect someone? The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? The virus can spread through respiratory droplets, this would be any kind of aerosolized product of a sneeze or cough, and it can spread through touch and close contact. How long does it stay alive on a surface? The data is really not conclusive, but you can control for that by washing your hands. Does hand sanitizer work? Yes, probably. But, washing for 20 seconds, and washing twice even does work for sure, but it's really the why SARS-2 virus infects someone that tells us more about how the COVID-19 disease goes down. TH is a 70-year-old man presenting to the Wuhan Red Cross Hospital with fever, cough, and trouble breathing on January 2nd, 2020. Two days later on January 4th, 2020, he was in respiratory failure, so he was intubated, but heart muscle enzymes were present in large amounts in his blood. This is something that you usually find in someone during a heart attack, but TH didn't have a heart attack. Additional blood test finds elevated liver enzymes signaling possible liver dysfunction. The next day, on January 5th, 2020, he was transferred to the Jin Yin Tan Hospital, unconscious. His admitting diagnosis was acute respiratory distress syndrome, respiratory failure, kidney failure and severe pneumonia. A CT scan finds that both of his lungs have a large ground glass shadow. This is a radiologic finding of usually pneumonia if we know someone has a respiratory infection. This doesn't prove long term damage, it's a visual sign on the imaging. ECG revealed ST segment changes indicating that there was damage to the heart muscle. He was placed on prone position ventilation, meaning that he was turned over onto his stomach. This positioning helps with oxygenation during mechanical ventilation. He was put on renal replacement, antibiotics, and symptomatic treatment. Antibiotics were given because viral pneumonias increased the chances of a secondary infection in the lungs. But nothing worked. TH progressed to septic shock disseminated intravascular coagulation, which is small blood clots getting lodged into places of the body that they shouldn't be, while the rest of the blood thins out at the same time causing hemorrhage, was worsening. At 4.15am on January 16th, 2020, BM's heart stopped beating. CPR and pressors were administered immediately, but at 4.45am, the code was called. BM was declared clinically dead. This case brings us to WHY SARS-2 infects. How does it cause pneumonia? Why does it increase the chances of a secondary infection? And why does it sometimes cause things like kidney injury, cardiac injury, and liver dysfunction? So the name coronavirus describes the crown-like shape on the spikes that line the surface of the virus. Corona means crown. There's hundreds of different coronaviruses out there, if not thousands. Right from the very beginning, calling this specific one THE coronavirus is a little misleading. So when people found patents of coronaviruses, these were ones that were for animals, suddenly everyone jumped. It's a relation by name. Now, those spikes on the SARS-CoV-2 virus are very similar to the one that was found on the first SARS virus, which was also a coronavirus. The spike is not exactly the same, but it's close, and we know this because the spike is a protein, and proteins are dictated by the genome that was sequenced earlier. The SARS-2 spike interacts and binds with a protein known as angiotensin-converting enzyme 2, ACE2. So where inside the human body is ACE2? Well, it's on the surface of cells in the lower lobes of the lungs. It's on the surface of heart cells, of kidney cells, liver, stomach, intestines, and on the cells of testicles. Meaning, if the SARS-2 virus comes in contact with cells that have a lot of ACE2 on the surface, then it could potentially infect them. When a virus infects a cell, it first needs to gain access on the surface. In this case, ACE2 interaction. It injects its genetic material and hijacks the cell's machinery to produce viral proteins. This means that the cells can't make its own proteins, and eventually, that viral machinery takes over and the cell dies while new viruses are released. Viral pneumonias, in general, have a propensity to increase the chances of a secondary infection. Dr. Joe Aiken, immunologist and alumnus from the Harvard Medical School and founder of Refigure, explains.
1: I think that most of the knowledge we know about these bacterial superinfections is based on data from flu virus infection. And so I've seen different reports where a significant percentage of people that get flu virus infection will then proceed to have a secondary bacterial superinfection. So it's unclear, like you said, how that's happening in the SARS virus. This is a completely different virus. You know, I think that the primary source of mortality is the viral damage and expansion in the lungs. But in the case of the flu, which has been extensively studied, I think that one of the models people are proposing now is that cytokine response, primary viral response to the flu virus is sort of like overdone. And that that inhibits the innate response against bacteria. So if as a consequence of the viral infection, what people have seen in these these mouse models primarily is that uh, certain cytokines are perhaps overproduced during the viral infection, and that um, limits the ability of macrophages to either take up antigens that would be specific to the bacteria that's starting to grow, or once those bacteria antigens are taken up, it actually limits the ability for those uh, antigen-presenting cells to initiate an adaptive response or an innate response even to the bacteria. I don't think people know exactly why this is happening, um, but the main cytokines that are implicated are the type 1 interferons, which we know are for a long time are a direct consequence in the host immune system of viral infection, and also type 2 interferon like interferon gamma, and then more controversial IL-10 And I think what's interesting about interleukin-10 is that it has been shown in the previous SARS infection. It has been shown to be upregulated to a great extent with SARS infection specifically.
0: So the first area of infection is going to be the place where the virus can easily access ACE2-expressing cells. Since SARS-2 can spread through airborne droplets, it goes into the lungs first. What kind of cells in the lungs have ACE2? It's the cells that line the lower lobes of the lungs called epithelial cells. This gives the virus access to the cells to replicate. Where else in the chest is there a lot of human ACE2? The heart. In the critically ill, the virus may end up in the heart due to the proximity and cardiopulmonary interaction that is heart to lung. The heart pumps blood to the lungs to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. If the virus gets into the blood, then it's for sure going to go to the kidneys, and the liver. Both of those have ACE2, which could explain TH's possible liver dysfunction and need for dialysis as the virus may have gotten there, although it might be harder to say for those, because. He was 70 years old, and the kidneys in someone at that age may not be at the same level of function as when that person was 20 years old. Additional reports of testicular damage due to virus have been reported in literature. The data is not good on how the virus could reach the testes, but what we do know is that ACE2 is on the cells in the male reproductive system, so the virus could affect that area. The question is, how would it get there? There's also some more speculation on how the virus would affect the brain, Although I think that this space is evolving right now, and I'm not sure how the mechanism would work. Not saying that it wouldn't happen, but I think that we would need to know more about it. So the truth about ACE2 binding is that In looking at the viral genome, it appears that it mutated the ability to target ACE2 when compared to what could be its ancestor. We have guesses as to what the ancestor of this particular SARS2 virus was. We can look at similarities in the genome of other coronaviruses, but it looks like it mutated the ability to infect humans through some kind of natural selection. Some mutations found are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. The ribonucleic acid, the RNA, that makes up the viral genome consists of four different building blocks, A, U, G, and C. In the entire sequence, where there was an A, the substitution of G would be a single nucleotide polymorphism. These SNPs, SNPs, can come up because of changes in the environment, or mistakes in reproduction that appear in replication. These can happen often, and we can see it now in the virus, as there's now two strains that are known as the S-type and the L-type. How much this affects the treatment, I'm not sure, but just know that it really is only two SNPs that are happening there. So this brings us back to how the virus infects people. Many papers were published describing the SARS-1 virus's spike. Scientists have been modeling how that virus binds to ACE2, which was also its target to infect humans. They've been using computer models to predict what kind of protein would bind best to ACE2. So they're trying to see what kind of spike would be the optimal one to bind to that enzyme. The actual way that SARS-2 virus binds to ACE2 is completely different to those predictions. Those computer models didn't predict an optimal binding method with the way that the SARS-2 spike is actually constructed. Meaning if that there were any thoughts that the SARS-2 virus was made deliberately by people, then it looks like we didn't and probably still don't even fully understand how binding to ACE2 actually works. To put it another way, If it was some kind of manufactured entity, the virus genome wouldn't look the way that it does. The hypothesis that has the most evidence behind it at the moment is that this specific SARS-2 virus mutated in a way that provides successful survival, reproduction, and transmissibility in humans. And because of that success, it's causing the problems that it's causing. If someone can give stronger evidence for a different hypothesis, at least I would like to hear it. I can't speak for the other scientists but i would like to know how that happens so we're looking at chance mutations collected over time which made the virus into what it is today so understanding what we know of the science behind the virus this gives us clues as to how to deal with this isolation and quarantine are effective tools now that we know that there is person-to-person spread through contact and through airborne respiratory droplets by preventing that kind of contact we can help prevent some of the spread of the virus. Travel restrictions and bans will also help curb the spread. We know what to test for when it comes to the virus, but then this brings us to the next problem. How would we get someone to qualify for a test? There's lots of reasons why this could be a problem. The first is that COVID-19 disease doesn't have specific signs and symptoms, meaning that without testing, It's hard to figure out if someone is infected with SARS-2, because fever, pneumonia, respiratory distress can be caused by a lot of different things. On a chest x-ray, you may be able to tell that the pneumonia is being caused by a virus, but how would you separate that from the flu virus? Fever can be caused by bacteria. Respiratory distress can be caused by both viruses and bacteria. Or since this is happening in the springtime, it could also be worsened by allergies as plants and trees start to bloom. The second reason why trying to find a qualification for a test be a problem is the country's definition of who could be a COVID-19 patient. Here in the United States in mid-February 2020, the criteria required previous travel to China. Well, the first patient in the United States presented on January 19th, 2020. This was the one in Washington state that was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine. That patient had recent travel to China, so he got tested. But how about all the people that he came into contact with before he presented to urgent care for that pneumonia? How about all the people that they came into contact with? Then, at the beginning of March 2020, a huge string of cases in Snohomish County, Washington broke out. Several deaths confirmed from COVID-19. Genomic analyses show a slightly mutated version of the virus, indicating that it was probably spreading behind the scenes throughout late January into February 2020. it's very possible that these cases were all mistaken as a flu, because right now is flu season. The virus takes anywhere from 3 to 24 days to show symptoms after infection. The median was reported to be around 5, so let's say that the majority of people show symptoms within 3 to 7 days. The 24 might be an outlier, it might be due to recall bias, in terms of somebody trying to figure out when they would have had that kind of contact, But it is important to know how long someone should be quarantined for. But when somebody who is infected do show symptoms, is it the flu? It's really common in February. Or is it SARS-2? Without updating the testing criteria to not just include those who have had travel to China or other affected places, then we're not going to get a more accurate count of cases. Without placing measures to contain it, like isolation and quarantine, it's going to start to spread. So what happens when the testing is expanded, and then we run out of tests? On February 12th, 2020 in China, this is what was starting to happen, and after that day, the diagnosis of COVID-19 disease didn't need the laboratory test to confirm, it became a clinical diagnosis, meaning that if the chest x-ray or CT showed evidence of a viral pneumonia, it was counted as COVID-19. The lab test actually takes a couple hours for it to happen. You need to wait to do it. If you know that there's a virus going around that's infecting a lot of people for several weeks at that point in time, then you should be able to rule out with some level of confidence that it's not being caused by other pathogens, especially when you have positive radiographic imaging of viral pneumonia. So on that day of February 12th, 2020, the number of cases rose dramatically because it just included so many more patients who didn't necessarily need to get that test at that point in time. As the tests start to become more available here in the United States, we're going to see a similar shift in numbers given that we're not doing the same lockdown and containment measures in early March 2020 as China did two months earlier in January. So what can we do about this? COVID-19 disease has a higher mortality rate in elderly patients with pre-existing conditions, but it also has an effect on immunocompromised patients of all ages. People who aren't as healthy and immunocompetent regardless of past medical histories could be at risk. The mortality is at least an order of magnitude greater than the flu, if not more. The precautions are not going to change. 1. Wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. Wash your hands twice if you would like. Don't touch your face. Don't touch your mouth. Don't stick your fingers in your mouth if you haven't washed your hands. Don't shake other people's hands. Disinfect your cell phone often. If you feel fever, cough, or fatigue, get that checked out by a doctor as you normally would the best course of action is to look at what is happening around you and take the necessary precautions if you need to travel somewhere follow the official guidance from my experience if you work for a company or some other entity usually their guidelines are more strict compared to the ones from local authorities listen to those if you're young and healthy non-smoker no past medical history and you feel ill don't panic because you have every advantage on your side here in the u.s make sure that you go and get it checked out. But know that this is not the flu. COVID-19 is a different disease. It can progress to very severe disease if you don't get the care that you need for it. Someone who ends up admitted into the ICU usually needs a long period of physical therapy afterwards. If you're older with past medical history, don't take any chances with any fever in general. Alert, not anxious is the best approach. Thanks for listening to this first episode of Heme Review. Please subscribe to the podcast from whichever platform you might be listening from. And please leave me a review for the podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you haven't already, please see the video that I made, Three COVID-19 Cases as Described by Doctors in China on YouTube. The link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Take care of yourself and be well.